0: you have a Bible anywhere nearby, grab it and open it to the book of Romans, chapter 2. We've already covered all of chapter 2 in our reading so far, and we're going to read the most of chapter 3 in the scripture reading in a minute, and I'm going to refer back to it a lot. This passage either had about 15 sermons in it or one, and so I'm going for one. There's one big point. Uh, that is made, and that's what we're going to look at today. It's why religiously compliant people struggle so much with Jesus and his good news. That couldn't possibly uh, be pertinent for any of us, could it? Uh, let me ask you this. Uh, do you know what Spike 80DF is? Spike 80DF? Uh, Jackson Wallraven and Julie Garland might know because they're uh, Auburn University alumni from Alabama. Um, Spike 80DF is an arbicide that a man named Harvey Updike used to kill a set of iconic live oak trees at the uh, corner of the campus of Auburn University. These are uh, uh, the gathering place for all the uh, fans of the school after games. They always throw toilet paper in the trees to celebrate victories there and a huge part of the school. And Harvey Updike was an overzealous fan of their rival school, Alabama. And he got so mad at Auburn one day that he went and drove these arbicide spikes, spike ADDF, into the ground around the roots of these live oak trees and it killed the trees. And no one really knew this until uh, Mr. Updike in a you know, fit of genius, decided to call into the local sports radio talk station and tell them that he had done it. And when they heard it, they thought, really, is he just saying that? It's, could he possibly really have done this? And they went and checked and he actually had. But they didn't know it because the trees still look good. And when you heard the news, you thought, well, maybe it won't work. You know, they're really big trees and you know, maybe this chemical isn't strong enough to kill them. But sure enough, uh, they were dead. Uh, they looked good. You could you could still water them and fertilize them and prune them and talk to them if you wanted to, and they looked fine, but they were dead. And eventually, they took them down because they died. The uh, problem that we are given in the Book of Romans is that Saint Paul says all of us are like those trees. That we may look okay on the outside and feel like we're pretty good people and all we need is a little fertilizer and a little pruning and talking to you and that we'll be fine but he says uh, now even though we may look okay on the outside our real problem is that we're dead we're dead morally and spiritually ever since our rebellion against god and he makes that case in the first chapter of romans that we looked at in some detail to say that all of us have decided to live independently of god And whether we're compliant or not compliant people generally and relative to each other, uh, all of us have had a breach with God that has ruined us in our lives morally and spiritually and put us in a terrible situation relative to God. Uh, Chapter 2, he turns his gaze onto religiously compliant people, though, and he says that everything I said about people being alienated from God because of their desire to be independent is true of you as well. Uh, you're not different than uh, the people that you despise for being immoral or unspiritual or off-base spiritually. Uh, This is why when Jesus came and spoke to religiously compliant people and said things like, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are people who are spiritually impoverished, spiritually bankrupt. That religiously compliant people looked at him as my mother would say, like a cow staring at a new gate. What can you possibly mean? How can can we be blessed by being spiritually bankrupt? And of course, the answer to that is that it's only the spiritually bankrupt who will look to Jesus for mercy. Everybody else will try to fix themselves. Everybody else will try to make themselves feel better in comparison to others and things. It's the spiritually bankrupt who have no hope who say, I need the help Jesus brings and almost no religiously compliant people feel that way. You know, take it from me. We don't feel that way. So what religiously compliant people do is they take God's law and they take it and turn it into a means whereby they don't need Jesus. Like if I can be good enough by keeping the law and being religiously devout, then maybe I won't need Jesus. I won't have to be a charity case and throw myself on his mercy. And uh, that's never what the law is intended to be for us. The law is intended to show us that we can't be good enough to warrant Jesus' favor and God's favor. So what Paul is doing here in this second uh, chapter is to say to religiously compliant people that you're just as needy as the people that you think of as life screw-ups, people who are morally a waste. You're just as needy as they are. You need Jesus just as much as they do. So, another really difficult message and passage, but let's listen to it and ask God to give us open ears as we do. Let's pray. Father, please help us. Um, Most of us are at least somewhat religiously compliant. And um, we ask that the blindness that usually attends to us would be removed, that you take it away and let us see ourselves with some honesty. Let us believe what you say about us so that we can be prepared for the good news of what Jesus has come to do for us. So come and speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name.
1: Amen. Romans 3, 1-20. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your own words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? But if uh, through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people have slanderously charged with us saying, their condemnation is just. What is, what then, are we, are Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and mercy, and in the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law speaks, says it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Not too long ago I was driving... Through Texas at night. And um, I don't know Texas very well. But I stopped to get gas, and when I got back on the highway, I went the wrong way. Um, I didn't, you know, I don't know if the signs were not familiar enough to me for me to realize for a long time that I was going the wrong way. And uh, I noticed in retrospect that while I was going the wrong way, like a fool, I. Uh, was still pretty proud as i did it because i was making great time and i also noticed that i was pretty judgy like i usually am about what other people are doing wrong driving and um, i usually try to explain this to people as a public service even if they can't hear me i feel like it helps my family learn about you know what good driving looks like for me to point these things out and so i was doing this and all my judgments of other people were really Pretty sound, I think. You know, people were doing things wrong that I accused them of doing wrong. The problem is that no matter what they were doing wrong, they weren't nearly as big an idiot as I was because I was going the wrong way. Now, uh, this is a classic hypocritical mistake: judging other people uh, when you yourself are guilty. It's a classic religious person's mistake, and so it felt like it came pretty naturally to me. You know, this idea of making hypocritical judgments is something that outsiders can see really clearly about us, but that as religiously compliant people, we have a very difficult time seeing about ourselves. Um, There's something like a sedative in religious compliance that puts us to sleep morally and spiritually, so we're just not able to understand ourselves well and see what's really going on in our lives. Um, That's why religiously compliant people struggle so much with Jesus you know, because he came to help people who are hopeless and helpless, and we think we're pretty good, not hopeless or helpless. And so we're going to think about what Paul does in chapters two and three here, uh, talking to religious insiders, religiously compliant people, showing that we have the same need that uh, the pagans had in chapter one, the people we look down on morally, that we condescend to, um, that we have the same sense of need that they do. And he makes the case Know, pretty elaborately in these chapters. So that's what we're going to look at kind of under two heads. First is uh, God, the just judge, and then second at us, the self-deluded judges. So first look at God, the just judge. You know, in chapter one, God's judgment was described as God letting people go their own way. Like if we prefer to live our lives according to our own uh, lights and wits, and preferences, God says, I'm going to let you go your own way and you'll reap the fruit of that. It. It's kind of a passive approach to judgment, letting us go. In chapter 2, he talks much more actively about the day of judgment, the time when God is set when he's going to judge the world actively uh, through Jesus Christ uh, at the resurrection, the last, at the end of history. You see, he says in verse 5 of chapter 2 that we're um, He talks about them storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And then in verse 16, he says something similar. He says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. That all of us will give an account of our lives to God uh, our secrets, our behavior in this life, what we've done. Uh, we're answerable to God for these things, and he will hold us to account at the last day is what we're told. And that uh, his patience now, it says in verse 4, you know, that God's forbearance and patience that we experience now is not a sign that we're getting away with what we do, but they're signs of God's patience. He's saying, look, I'm giving you time to repent. I'm giving you time to throw yourself on Jesus' mercy. And, uh, but that time won't go on forever there's going to be a day of judgment in which we answer to God, all of us. So the odd thing about it is Paul says in verse 16 that this is, according to his gospel, God is going to judge the world through Jesus Christ. And gospel's good news, and judgment doesn't sound like good news to us. It sounds like bad news to us, and it is bad news for us because we're culpable and accountable to God. It's good news in this sense, though, that The announcement of the gospel is that Jesus is the true king, that the Messiah of Israel is the king of the world, and he's going to fix the world and set back right-side up everything that we've subverted by our rebellion. And so it means that he hears the cries of the oppressed. He hears the uh, cries of people who suffer under injustice, and he's going to answer those cries, and he's going to set things back right and redress what is wrong in the world. But it means also that he will redress what's wrong with us. And that's a fearful thing. The reason we usually call the gospel good news is because we know that in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, uh, the offer of mercy and forgiveness is held out to people who know they need it. And so his work to set the world back right involves both redress of evil and mercy to people who seek mercy from him. And his justice is impartial, he says. In verse 11, God shows no partiality to the religious or irreligious, to the Jew or Gentile. He sees things the way they are and he judges fairly. Does that sound crazy to you? The idea of a judgment day when we'll all stand before God and, and answer for what we've done in the body? Um, it's striking. I mean it's not like something we've ever experienced or seen before, but uh, God promises us what's gonna happen. And it's not crazier than the kind of things you hear around funerals these days when people try to make sense of the afterlife and what has happened to loved ones who have died. Uh, you hear the strangest things, the hardest things to believe that people seem to countenance and take comfort from. Um, I was watching a TV show, uh, Frankie and Grace, and they were worrying because of a guilty consciences about what was gonna happen in the afterlife. And someone, I think it was an ex-minister, was saying, well, if you really understand it right, it's not so bad. See, if you uh, if you're a good person, people will remember you well in your life, and being remembered well, well, that's heaven. And if you're an evil person, people will remember you poorly when you die, and being remembered poorly, well, that's hell. And the people heard that and thought, oh, that's tremendously comforting. Now I feel a lot better. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. You you believe that? I, I, that doesn't make any sense. I, that. That's a preposterous thing to believe. Um, But that's the kind of thing you hear when people try to make sense of the afterlife. But God says, no, there's going to be an an accounting that your conscience uh, is telling you the truth when it says that your life uh, is needing evaluation and that you have a problem with your moral and spiritual life in this world. And he says that he has um, assured us that there's going to be a day of reckoning by raising Jesus from the dead. Remember in the uh, sermon that Paul preached in Athens to the uh, folks who are unfamiliar with the faith, uh, he told them at the very end of his sermon, he said, God has appointed a day in which he will judge the entire world by a man of his choosing. And he's given assurance to all of this by raising him from the dead. And so as as certainly as Jesus has been raised from the dead, uh, he will function as our judge at the last day. And all of us are set to face this. It's all of our destinies. And the verdict in his justice and his judgment against us is the same, whether we're religious or irreligious. All of us have our mouths shut before God and are held accountable. All of us are found guilty before God. The stark terms of Romans 3 that we read says that none of us is able to stand in the day of judgment. And uh, he says in verse 9, uh, we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. Now, um, so the verdict in the judgment day against us, religiously compliant or not, is a negative judgment that we uh, stand guilty before God. He says no one will be acquitted through their through the works of the law, whether it's the Torah, the Jewish law or whether it's just your own sensibilities and conscience none of us will be acquitted uh, in the day of judgment because of our good behavior so the law won't be uh, won't be medicine for us so that we can avoid jesus the law is given to us to show us that we need him desperately that we have no hope beside him the law is not given to us so that we can become good enough people that we won't really need death of the Holy Son of God in our stead to reconcile us to God. We all need that, no matter how religiously compliant we are. So God is a just and impartial judge and we'll all face him, he says, but we are also judges. We're just self-deluded and partial judges, unlike God. So, you know, You get the idea in Paul's mind, as he's writing to fellow Jews at this point, that when they were reading chapter one about the pagans and how immoral and foolish they are religiously, that they were sort of sitting back smugly and thinking, yeah, that is the way they are. You know, you see it everywhere around you. It's what's, you know, it's what's wrong with our culture today and, you know, those kind of notions. But now Paul turns his gaze back towards the Jews, Jewish believers or religiously compliant people Uh, And he says, you're no better off. Which, of course, they don't believe it's shocking to them. They have confidence that because they keep the Sabbath and because they keep kosher and because they observe circumcision, that they're fine with God. That they're doing what they're supposed to do. They're the good people. They're the good guys with the white hats and they'll be fine before God. Uh, But he accuses them of being hypocritical and saying, you judge other people, but uh, you are just as susceptible to judgment yourself. It's hypocritical, he says. In verse 23 and 24 in chapter 2, you know, he says, You who boast in the law, you dishonor God by breaking the law. Uh, as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And our hypocrisy, of course, drags Jesus' name through the dirt with our friends and neighbors. Uh, they see things clearly. He's not saying that all the religious people's sins are the same sins as the non-religious people's sins. He's not, they may have different sins, but they have the same problem of sin, the overarching problem of sin. In verse 9, he says, uh, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. It just takes different expressions for religiously compliant people than it does for others. So when we're judgmental, we're hypocritical. Doesn't mean we can never make moral judgments. We can and must and do. But when we do it condescendingly, as if we're different, uh, then we show up our hypocrisy. If we can criticize other people's sins without any sorrow or identification with people in their sins, uh, then it shows our hypocrisy, as if we didn't need Jesus as much as anyone we know does. So, the confidence that we're supposed to have is, is in God's grace, right? It's that what we've been given by God, reconciled to Him, living under his blessing and care is a gift that he's given us that we haven't earned at all it's something jesus has earned for us Uh, but religious people tend to take things like circumcision or baptism and say well you know these are things that make me superior when things circumcision and baptism which are kind of the correlative initiatory signs and faith in god in the old testament when you became a believer you were circumcised in the new testament you're baptized uh, they both picture washing from sin, the cutting away of pollution from our lives. They both picture our need of being cleaned, not something to be proud of ourselves, right? It's that we needed to be baptized or circumcised. is not to our credit, it's to our shame. Uh, it's God's grace that uh, we're happy about that we receive these things. That's why he says that real circumcision is internal circumcision. Real Jews are Jews inwardly. It's not outward conformity to the law, but it's someone who has a genuine relationship with God that comes through his mercy that is right with God, Uh, not someone who's outwardly compliant, being right with God. So our condescension and our judgmental attitudes are inappropriate and foolish, and everybody else sees that but us, Uh, but Paul's making the point, so hopefully we'll see it too. But it's the kind of thing you see. I mean, I talked to somebody who would say... uh, a prosecutor, and they made the statement to me that all defense attorneys are abject liars and care nothing for the truth or justice. And I said, that seems like a bold statement. I said, are prosecutors also open to these uh, charges? Nope, not at all. Prosecutors are not like that at all, I was told. This is by a Christian person, right? Um, And I'm like, well, like prosecutors are never tempted to juke stats or take cases or not take cases, depending on how likely they are to win so that they can have a good record when they come up for reelection, that they get lots of convictions, none of those things, color motives at all. Nope. Mm-mm. But those defense attorneys, boy, they're the worst, let me tell you. I right? you think, well, that's, you may be saying something that's, that's uh, at times true of defense attorneys, but you're saying it with a blindness that that makes your judgment seem foolish, right? Or same thing you hear in political arguments, like the other side of the political spectrum, they are all ill-motivated liars. My side is not, they are. And you think if someone thinks or speaks this way, it makes them seem foolish because you think, of course, we're all sinful human beings. We all face the same temptations and we all react to it the same way. We all are as corrupted by power as the other side. And to not notice that makes our judgment of other people seem foolish, right? Um, you hear Christians sometimes quoting Edwin Edmund Burke. They'll say, you know, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is that good men do nothing. And say it with all earnestness, never, ever have I heard someone quote that uh, associating themselves with evil men. They always associate themselves as the good men. Now, Paul is not really unclear in what he said in this passage when he says, uh, no one understands, no one seeks for God, no one does good, not even one. And I remember a minister saying to me, how many? Not even one. So the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil in the world is that good men, which according to Paul is the empty set, there aren't any good men, do nothing. But Christians will quote these things straight-faced as if we're good people and other people are way worse people than we are. And it's no wonder that Jesus is a problem for us because we think, well, why if I'm a good person do I need a Savior like Jesus? I really don't. That's why Jesus is hard for us. The trees look good. They look like they're alive and just maybe need a little pruning or talking to or watering, but the trees are dead. The trees are dead. So this is hard. I My job is to talk about this and I don't know what I've done to convince people or what other people have done to convince them, but almost everybody thinks my job is like the job of a kindergarten teacher. I'm supposed to civilize people and try to make them behave better. And that's not my job to try to make people uh, good, better citizens. You know, there's, there's, uh, implications and fruit of faith in Jesus Christ that involves a lot of moral reform and I'm I'm for that and I'm involved in that process like you are but the point of the good news is not to tell people to behave better so that God will like them but everybody thinks that somebody gave me a book the other day it was called uh, resilience hard-won wisdom for living a better life hard-won wisdom is written by a Navy SEAL who's in Congress now you know, a guy with, you know, an eye patch because he's tough and has lived hard and, you know, earned the right to say these things about perseverance and resilience, I'm sure. And the friend who gave it to me very kindly uh, suggested, hey, you should read this because it's just full of great stories and examples that you could use in your sermons. And I didn't know what to say and how to say to say that hard-won wisdom for living a better life is not my business. That's not what I do. It's not what I'm called to do. It's not the message of Jesus in the New Testament to develop hard-won wisdom for living a better life. It's facing up to your moral and spiritual brokenness so that you'll throw yourself on Jesus's mercy. And if I use the resilience stories, I'm probably just gonna inflate the religiously compliant people's idea of how good they are and make them think if they could just keep the law a little bit better, God would like them even more and be even happier with them. And that's not the good news of the Christian faith. I used to have a friend who'd come to church who was a uh, had a retail business and would do sales meetings on Tuesday mornings, and you know, really wanted to inspire his troops and get them motivated to sell. And and I always had this sense, because I really love this guy, I, I wanted to have some things in my sermon that would be like nuggets that he could take and use at a sales meeting on Tuesday morning. And the more I wanted to do that and try to do it, the more I realized what I was up against. I can't, if I succeed in giving my friend nuggets for the sales meeting, I've probably failed at my job as a preacher, right? Because he's trying to motivate people to do better. And I'm trying to get people to trust Jesus because they can't do better. And, uh, but boy, it's a, it's a tricky thing when everybody assumes the opposite of what you're doing is what you're doing. As a, as a preacher. So I, I want you to feel sorry for me. That's the, really the point of me telling you that. Because what I really want is I want to feel my need of Jesus more deeply and I want you to feel your need of Jesus more deeply. That, that's what I want for you. Uh, that's what you need. That's what I need. Uh, the only hope we have of forgiveness and change in this life is what Jesus has done for us in his death and resurrection. And um, being a relatively better or worse person uh, doesn't change the verdict of God in our lives. It doesn't change his verdict. So I don't know what... To, if, you're, if you're an all right guy, if you're better than most, if you're a pretty good person, especially if you're a religious version of any of that, um, I don't know what to tell you because the good news of Jesus is going to be hollow in your ears. Um, if you're condescending, if you look down on other people, if you think you're an all right guy, if you're by comparison good you're just not going to be able to hear the good news of Jesus. Um, But if you buy it a little bit, if you feel it a little bit, if you think, you know, really, when I'm honest, I have nothing to recommend me to God, and His law is not aspirational for me, His law is condemning for me, well, there's good news for you, and it's coming in spades in the next chapters in Romans. Now, Let's pray together. Father, we um, want to believe this, Um, and we believe you believe it, it's just hard for us to be convinced that what you say about us is true, but we want your son Jesus, and we want to be connected to him, and we want life with you, and if the way to that is through this verdict, we pray you'd let us feel it and embrace it, and so I pray for myself and my friends here that you would humble us and that you would let us see our need of the mercy of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.